What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Welcome to Done by Law on 3CR 855 AM. And also welcome to those listening to it, the podcast or streaming on 3cr.org.au. It's 6pm on Tuesday the 7th of September 2021, though we note that this is a pre-recorded show from Sunday the 5th of September. Firstly, we would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the original and rightful custodians of the land we're both broadcasting from. We also pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge this land was stolen, never ceded. Your hosts for tonight are Indra and Gemma. Tonight, we are going to be talking about a few recent important developments in the Victorian justice system, which you might have missed, seeing as how much is going on in the world right now. So firstly, in relation to an important inquiry into improving the experience of court and trials for victims of crime. And secondly, we're going to be looking at the Victorian government's new outline to bring forward important legislation which would protect the rights of intersex people from surgeries before they can lawfully consent. So Gemma, over to you. Would you like to give us a brief bit of background into the first topic for this evening? Yeah, sure. Um, look, it's actually popped up in the news in recent days, so, so our listeners might have might have caught it. Uh, but essentially, the the, the Victorian um, Victims of Crime Commission, which is a an independent commission uh, that was established basically to enhance and protect and promote the right victims. Um, has announced that it will exercise uh, one event victims giving evidence in court um, and and I suppose really delve into how the court process itself can often be re-traumatising for victims. Um, that victims are not at the, the set of decisions and processes and that's been something that's been quite well um, documented or discussed, I think, um, and we're Certainly in recent years, particularly after the Me Too movement, I think we're getting a better sense of of how paltry some of the uh, processes are uh, that victims have to follow in order to have uh, their story heard and changed in response to that to that experience are often seen as an afterthought um, or or sort of not 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 embedded in the process at all. And from about 2018. Uh, victims in Victoria have at least, I guess, been recognised under what's called under a, a victim's charter. So this was a new, a new document that was brought about um, to to recognise what what role victims play as participants in criminal proceedings. Um, that word participants has a lot of uh, sort of uh, is quite loaded, I guess. Well, the, the the fact that that you're a participant and you're still not. Um, recognised as a, as a party, because of course, if there's a criminal proceeding brought, uh, you'll know from looking at the, the, the a case name that it's the name of the accused, Smith and the Crown. So the victim's name is not part of that case. It's not recognised in the case. And the reason for that is that when, when a person is prosecuted, 
it's done by the state itself rather than the victim usually taking matters into their own hands. And there's important public policy imperatives behind that. Victims um, of a crime are only really uh, able to participate in a, in a criminal proceeding as a piece of evidence. And they're certainly not even the primary piece of evidence um, in many instances. It might be that there's a victim impact statement where they're able to describe what um, what impact um, that, 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 that criminal conduct has had on them. And that will be taken into account in terms of sentencing and what kind of sentence might be appropriate. Uh, but it's certainly um, the, the impact that, that criminal behaviour might have had on someone is not usually a part of the evidence that is taken. Uh, that's much more of a um, nuts and bolts uh, process of ensuring that the evidentiary boxes are ticked. So if we take, you know, an assault charge, uh, it is the job of the prosecutor to ensure that they have put forward to the judge or the jury all of the elements of the crime that they can tick off. And so a victim's um, evidence uh, in, you know, in the in the witness box might be might be a relevant part of that evidence that they need to adduce, but it's not necessarily essential and certainly not the kind of evidence which is going to give that victim the opportunity to describe in their own words or at their leisure what happened to them. They're very controlled in the manner in which they're allowed to speak uh, because of the way and, and, and the, I suppose the precedence that we have around the legal system of how evidence needs to be brought. Um, and there's a lot of rules that have to be followed to ensure it's admissible. And we can kind of get into a discussion about that later. So really this 2018 Victims Charter uh, was a step towards ensuring that the, um, recognising that that's a, there's a real power imbalance in place in across many Victorian courts, um, and that we needed to do something to understand what are some basic sort of standards that need to be maintained or what can victims expect from the process to make it a little less imposing. That, that sort of speaks also to a broader issue that um, there was very little known uh, in just, to, I suppose, in sort of longitudinal research about how victims experienced, uh, have experienced these um, these processes, the court process, but also how they have responded to what impact the victim's charter has had and whether that's actually improved the justice system at all. Um, there was another important step in the, in the history to how this inquiry took place, and that was a, a 2016 report that was conducted by the Victorian Law Reform Commission, um, which looked at the victims of crime in the criminal trial process. Um, and that report found that there was a significant disparity between the victim's role as expressed in legislation uh, and their experience as well. So um, the outcome of that report was that the VLRC recommended that the role of the victim um, should, be, should be further recognised again. Um, so I guess with those two, two points, we sort of brought up to this uh, to this to this announcement in the in recent days that's been made uh, by the victims of crime commissioner to formally conduct this inquiry uh, there was a publication in the age uh, on uh, saturday the 4th of september that um canvassed i guess a number of um stories so I, should, I should say that that story uh was um 
from Adam Cooper. Uh, and we can put a link up to that story on our website if people would like to, to read more of it. Um, but it was a story that really sort of showed the breadth of what the victims victims can experience, I guess, which showed how how wide reaching, I guess, this 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 problem can be. Yeah, I, I think what have like your experiences been in in practice kind of dealing with this? I think like the, the most I've really noticed in in terms of like how um, victims are treated have been in terms of sexual assault and rape and I think in in that sort of area there and and child sexual abuse as well like there's been quite a lot of um steps taken but I guess I'm curious to know like in a more sort of broad setting what what have your experiences been in terms of um I guess working with with victims yeah look I I mean I should I haven't worked in the criminal legal system professionally so I've never, um, I suppose, uh, shepherded a client or represented a client in the criminal process. Mm. Um, but I did work um, as uh, an associate at the Supreme Court Victoria a number of years ago now. Um, and in that role, I guess I did have the, the, the opportunity to sit in on many different trials and including criminal trials. Um, and see, I guess, that what's what's often referred to as bar- with barristers as courtcraft, so that you you witness yeah. the courtcraft being um, shown, and that um, in particular with with cross examination. So mm. for those listeners that that might not be aware, the, the process of of um, of ensuring that basically the I'll, I'll just use the civil the civil system for the purposes of this example. So let's say that somebody um, uh, was was injured at work and that for whatever reason um, they're bringing that claim to court and that's in in trial. So that their their job basically as the plaintiff in the proceeding um, is to demonstrate that they have uh, been injured, that that injury was caused by their employer or because of that employer's negligence that reaches the statutory requirements and therefore their injury is significant enough that they should receive compensation. So they're kind of the very basic elements of a negligence case. And in that trial, um, it would the, the barristers of, of, of um, that would be representing the plaintiff would be required to ensure that they've, I guess, ticked those boxes like I was kind of talking about before. Um, the process goes that the the, the, the barrister on behalf of somebody calls that person to give evidence and they kind of can explain in limited sort of circumstances what happened to them. Um, and I say limited because it, it still has to be quite constrained to the issues that are relevant to the proceeding. Um, so that might not include at that stage, certainly, um, what that made them feel like. It's literally like a who, when, why, what, how. Um, and then it's uh, then it switches to the other side to have a go basically at poking holes in that mm. um, evidence, in that testimony. Um, and there's actually a rule, um, a, a really important rule uh, that we have in the justice system, um, both uh, relevant to criminal and civil, called the Brown and Dunn rule. Um, and, and essentially that rule uh, has now been codified and protected within the Evidence Act and other sort of supporting idea, 
um, legislation, sorry, that we have around this area now. Uh, but that rule requires under cross-examination the barrister to put very clearly and formally to the person they're cross-examining what they are getting at. So their, their, their basic accusation, I guess, or what they're, what they're saying and why they think it's deficient. So classic Baron and Dunn rule would be something like, um, you're making up how much pain you're in, aren't you? Um, or uh, you didn't really follow the safety procedures, did you? Um, and those two statements are really trying to kind of poke holes and say, well, they couldn't have, you know, the employer would, wouldn't have been, wasn't negligent. It was in fact the fact that the worker wasn't following the, the, the study, the sorry, the, the safety requirements that they were required to, or that they weren't as badly injured as they actually are claiming to be, and therefore they're not going to get, they shouldn't be getting as much compensation. So because that rule requires those those issues to be put, you can see in a civil, uh, a civil case why that's important, but it's also important in the criminal context. But you could see that if you had a victim who had gone through an extremely traumatic mm. experience, like a rape or a sexual assault, uh, that the Brown and Dunn rule requires that to be put in a very, it, it, it's quite affronting, um, uh, let alone the fact that they are needing to discuss at length sometimes what has happened to them down to the minute detail. Yeah. Um, and as a cross-examination, you're required to show that a witness might not be reliable um, and to show that someone is unreliable, some of the techniques or um, issues that you might look to draw upon could be um, whether they uh, have a good memory of the night. Now, if you, got a, if you have a sexual assault yeah. case, yeah. Um, you get into real, real trouble when you start trying to paint somebody as um, unreliable because they have mm. been drinking um, or because the sexual, um, I guess, interaction that they had had been consensual at one point but not consensual later. So yeah, these are the circumstances that people really struggle with and understandably so. Yeah, and I was just going to say like so many of those elements you know, apart from obviously like reliving the trauma of what's happened, they tie so much into kind of, you know, even like the societal ideas that create like self-doubt and, and you know, that own your own, especially, you know, if you look to kind of sexual assault um, cases, that sort of element that that's already a pressure, you know, that it's so hard to even sort of come forward and, and talk about it. Um, in a safe space where you're not going to be doubted and you're not going to be questioned and then that's sort of what you're faced with when you're you're in court like it's quite and I know that I mean tell me if I'm wrong but like I do know that there's been I'm not really sure in terms of sexual assault cases but I mean do you think that some of the sort of precautions they've put in place even in terms of like you know, what they do with children, like perhaps using video calls or, you know, even just having a separate room where you're not in the same um, room as the person, as the accused, and you're not in this sort of intimidating space. Um, do you think that that could be broadened further? Like, you yeah, know, I, I, I agree. And, and the, the, the piece from Cooper kind of gives some examples of um, experiences victims have, have had where basic things that they were expecting as part of the trial process weren't there on the day that they were going to give evidence. So there's an example where mm. a mother was going to give evidence and uh, about 
the you know a victim impact statement she was going to read out to the court essentially what this the impact of this terrible crime had had on her and her only request i think was that she didn't want to have to look at the accused she didn't want to have to see them and for whatever reason on the day in which she was actually called that 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 measure hadn't been taken um, and it's those little things that can make such a huge difference mm. uh, to, you know, because they're, they're often, um, it, it's a, it's about, uh, being able to control an environment and not have the, the, the inputs of that environment be re-traumatizing. And often what is re-traumatizing is if you have a lack of control about the environment which you're going into. So it's those little things that I think actually can make a really big difference. And they're common, they're almost common courtesies that really could be uh, taken quite easily if yeah. it was embedded as part of the cultural process that the justice system um, offers. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that you give the example of, of, of having cross-examination in a different room or on video, um, there are many things I think that could be done to improve the experience of victims. Where it gets into, and it would be interesting to hear from a criminal defence um, perspective, but my understanding is that um, there's there's some important um, uh, traditions of the justice system that are particularly about why we require someone to have a criminal trial in person. So there's a reason why in lockdown we've had a backlog of criminal trials build up. And that's because whilst you might be able to have a lot of interlocutory hearings or, you know, the intermediate kind of intermediary hearings, sorry, conducted over Zoom, there's a really important part of our justice system which requires the eyeballing of a jury to look at the accused and to sort of understand what that, to, to make an assessment for themselves um, from the way that they are reacting or responding. Um, and to, you know, I think there would be some concern or there would be interest, I would imagine, from the criminal defence community about how many safeguards are put in place and how that could still ensure that the, those principles um, of ensuring that justice is done in a way in which allows that human interaction in a courtroom setting can still be maintained. Now, can that be done over Zoom? Can you watch a video of cross-examination um, uh, and have the same experience that you would as if it were done directly in front of you live? Um, I'm not sure. And I think that would be really interesting to find out. Um, and I'm not sure whether the terms of reference for this inquiry would allow for that kind of investigation. Um, and I think one of the other interesting things that we've kind of touched on here is that this is an inquiry being conducted by the Victims of Crime Commissioner. Um, again, I haven't gone over the terms of reference with any, you know, eagle eye, but it obviously is only going to be limited to trials for in the criminal justice system. Um, but many of these issues... Uh, in terms of re-traumatising processes that could occur um, will happen in the civil jurisdiction, in particular for historical sexual abuse cases. And we saw that, I think, very clearly in 2019 with the um, trial um, of Pell. But there was a lot of um, consideration about the reporting of that case 
um, and the way in which evidence was correctly adduced or not in that case to ensure that the accused had a fair trial, uh, but that um, the victim's testimony was also properly understood and heard and absorbed and gave the jury. And then in that case, the appeal court the opportunity to properly understand the strength of it. So it would be great to see whether these, whatever the outcome of the inquiry could be thought about in the civil jurisdiction as well, where there's just as much of a need to ensure that people, not victims, but applicants and plaintiffs are giving evidence in a way that is not going to re-trigger, re-traumatise and re-injure um, uh, them in that way as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that's, it's, it'll be very interesting to see where this goes and maybe even to retouch on this, this topic. For sure. Um, so we're just going to go to a quick break now and we'll be back shortly. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters, where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. And welcome back. You're listening to Done By Law on 3CR 8.55am and online at 3cr.org.au with Gemma and Indra. Uh, Now, we've just been talking um, about some recent developments um, in Victoria in relation to an inquiry that's been announced by the Victims of Crime Commissioner. Now we're going to turn to another development in Victoria that's been a win for intersex human rights in Victoria. In July last year, the Victorian government publicly committed to reforming the government's approach to intersex human rights. They released the plan entitled, I Am Equal, Future Directions of Victoria's Intersex Community. The plan includes reforms that aim to increase awareness of innate variations of sex characteristics, and it will develop new resources and support intersex health and wellbeing services. However, the most significant commitment to come out of the plan is the protection of human rights of intersex people in healthcare, namely prohibiting deferable medical interventions without personal consent. It is important to note that this legislation is well overdue. In 2013, there was a Senate committee report on involuntary or coerced sterilisation of intersex people in Australia. Amongst other reports, there have also been UN treaty body recommendations to Australia, calling for the explicit legal protections from harmful practices. Until July last year, despite lobbying and pressure from many organisations, nothing had been done. Indra, can you tell us a bit more about how this came about um, and I guess where Australia sits in the broader international context of this kind of legislation? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, I mean, globally, there's actually just very, very few countries that have, you know, really put into legislation um, this form of protection. 
And Malta, interestingly, was the first country in the world um, to pass, well, it passed the Gender Identity, Gender Expression and Sex Characteristics Act. And that was in 2015. So this came after um, a lot of sort of international lobbying and the UN was involved. Um, And so they basically had the first well, the section 14 of that act, which made it unlawful for medical practitioners and professionals to conduct any sex assignment treatment and uh, or surgical intervention on the sex characteristics of a minor when treatment or intervention can be deferred until the person can provide informed consent. Um, Can I ask just about that, Indra? So does that mean that uh, currently in Victoria and I guess in Australia, if a person is uh, born intersex, that their parents could make that decision, I guess, in conjunction with doctors to decide what's best for them? Yeah, well, um, I mean, it is often infants and young children and it is often parents, especially Mm. when it's this. If you look at the... um, So the Intersex Human Rights Australia is sort of a leading organisation in Australia in terms of um, this issue. And they've given some reasons that, like, people often... Well, parents generally often um, decide to do this. and, And, you know, it ultimately comes down often to stigma and, you know, dealing with parental distress at having a child who is intersex um and there's even been comments of like improving marriage prospects and like all of these things which are obviously just really really problematic and for a variety of reasons obviously it's not it's not you know just the legislation it obviously also comes down to education as well but yeah they're they're happening in australia um they are not necessary medically um and they obviously have really really traumatizing effects on on people within the community so it's really really important that this this gets changed it's really great i think that just looking at the victorian government's approach to this you know self-determination is an underlying principle of this plan to go forward so they had the victorian intersex advisory group lead this um, IN equal directions um, and the creation of it, which I think is really, really good. Well, it sounds like um, it'd be great, obviously, to see what the draft legislation is when it's brought about. Um, We're not up to that stage, I take it. It's just that the government's announced that they're they're going to consider. Obviously, um, the proof will be in the pudding. Um, It'll be interesting to see what what words they use and what, what draft legislation they base that on. But um, if they're obviously going off the the great work that's been done by Intersex Human Rights Australia and I guess the Equality Australia um, organisation as well, um, that's a really hopeful sign um, because, as, as you said, uh, any steps to help would reduce, I guess, stigma and harm um, that's, that's stemmed from uh, not having uh, a... a a proper recognised uh, protected status for people who are born with intersex um, characteristics um, will be a really, really valuable, valuable yeah. thing. Yeah, and it's really good because um, Intersex Human Rights Australia is acting sort of as an independent body. And so there, I think in February, they started um, drafting a like a model bill 
So um, that aims to guide states in drafting the legislation and also act as just a body that will sort of oversee what's going on within within that decision-making process and and the drafting of the the actual legislation. Um, So that's a really big task for for that organization but I think it's it's yeah looking really positive for the future I feel like we needed some sort of positive yeah positive shining light and this one kind of feels like it 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 kind of went under the radar because of the amount of information flying around but that is just a really great outcome yeah and I think lost to the organizations who've been pushing this for so long. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's huge that I think Victoria and now also the ACT, like they're really leading, you know, in, in the world almost because there really are very few countries that have this sort of legislation. And I think that um, hopefully the other Australian states will follow suit and territories and, you know, and then the rest of the world, hopefully. Um, but I would just like to say that if you're interested in learning more about this, um, the Intersex Human Rights Australia website is just really, really informative. And you can also donate if you would like to, because it is um, a completely independent organisation. Yeah, you should go and have a look at their website. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll put that link um, up on our website after this episode um, as well. Um, and just about we did... Uh, try to get in contact with um, those organisations um, and I did try and make contact with a, a few people that might be interested to speak with us in relation to the Victims of Crime Inquiry, um, but we weren't able to get in time, which is, I think, just reflective of the the COVID state that we find ourselves yes. in. Um, but certainly if we do hear back and, and we, it'd be great to tee up those interviews um, in the coming months, so we'll do that. For sure. Thanks so much for bringing that to our attention, Indra. Um, I think that's the program for tonight. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, This program will be available on podcast, as always. And I'm Gemma and this is Indra. Thanks so much for listening.